Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to the Kathy Heller Podcast. Can you believe it is already the last week of the year? It's crazy. I just can't believe how this year went by so, so fast. I wanted to celebrate with a roundup of some of my favorite moments of this podcast from 2022. Before we share that with you, I want to ask you if you are going to join me for this program that we were doing in the new year, Abundant Ever After. We always add some good stuff to it and it's going to be actually double as long as Abundant Ever After usually is. It's uh, it's going to be really chock full with not only the rewiring of your subconscious to really help you like step out of these old programs so you can allow in a lot more wealth and notice, start to be aware of where you've been unconsciously kind of keeping yourself apart from allowing money into your life. And then also it's going to help you start and scale a business where you light up, where you get paid to be you and you're going to love it. You're going to love it. So right now it's actually on half price for the holidays and you can grab your seat in this program. If you go to kathyheller.com slash join, it's going to be amazing and we'll get to hang out. It's going to be three months of, I think, a total paradigm shift and something that gets you really in momentum with what will completely change your year. I just got a message from one of the women who took the program uh, a year ago, and she said that last year she made $285,000. And I was just so excited because those notes come in all the time. And it's the best feeling in the world. So if you want to join us, go to kathyheller.com slash join. All right. So let's dive in to this roundup episode. I think some of these clips, whether you heard these episodes or not, I think this is going to feel so inspiring. So let's dive in. We're going to continue our annual tradition of highlighting some of the top moments of the podcast. And we always end up picking so many clips that we have a two-parter. So on Thursday, we're going to feature some more of the best guests from this year. So to kick it off, I wanted to share this clip from the amazing Marianne Williamson who gave us this metaphor. I've been repeating it over and over since. It's so beautiful. Take a listen. You mentioned a while ago, a few minutes ago, that your (laughs) rabbi had talked about each of us being a ray in the sunbeam, a sunbeam in the mind of God. This is what the Course in Miracles says. The Course says, you are like a sunbeam thinking you are separate from other sunbeams. You're like a wave in the ocean thinking you're separate from other waves. But there's actually no place where one sunbeam stops and another sunbeam starts. There really is no spot where one wave stops and another wave begins. What we have is the thought that we are separate from that which in fact cannot be separate from us. Now, think of the different psychological and emotional orientation depending whether I think of myself as one wave separated from all the other waves in the ocean versus my experience of myself, others, and life itself, if I think of myself as a wave that is connected to every other wave. So if I think of myself as a wave, a little wave in this huge ocean separate from all the other waves, how can I not live in constant terror that I will be obliterated by another wave? How can I not live in constant terror that I will be annihilated on some level by the hugeness of the ocean? Now, the other possibility, that which arises from truth is, there's no place where I stop and it starts. I'm part of this ocean. 
I move, it moves. It moves, I move. I'm part of this whole thing. I'm huge. The power of the ocean is in me. And I'm part of the power of the ocean. And there's nothing to fear in the ocean. It is my identity. Which life do you want? So the Course in Miracles says that every thought we think, now this is really big. The Course says that every thought we think creates form on some level. That every thought is a cause that has an effect. Wow. Free will means the freedom to think whatever you want to think. If you think with love for yourself and others, you are literally co-creating with God. It says God has created the world with the skeletal arrangement of the law of cause and effect. It's the, the skeleton that holds it all together. For our protection, the Course says, you put out love, your life's going to work. More than not. Now, on the other hand, I don't have to. Free will means I can think with love, but I can choose not to. And at every moment, you do make a choice. You make a choice consciously or you make a choice unconsciously. But every single moment, my heart's either open or my heart's closed. In the moment when it's open in love, I'm co-creating with God. And the Course in Miracles says miracles, which is a shift in perception from fear to love and the form of love that then comes back at you because all thought creates form on some level, that is righteous, right use, living. Mm. If in some moment I believe that I'm separate, which is what the world tells me, you're over there and I'm over here. Therefore, on some level, I'm afraid of you. Therefore, on some level, I better protect myself against you. Therefore, I am always looking for the fault in you, something I can judge in you so that I can feel maybe I'm better because I think the world is a zero sum. I'm lost in this madness of that filter and that perspective. And the Course in Miracles says that love is to fear what light is to darkness. So darkness isn't a thing. It's just the absence of a thing. And you don't get rid of it by fighting the darkness. You get rid of it by turning on the light. Ah, I love that so much. All right. Now here's a clip from another spiritual teacher who has played probably the most pivotal role in my life. Rabbi David Aaron, it's astounding how much wisdom he has and how much love he just emanates. Every time I'm with him, it just blows my mind and blows my heart wide open. All right, take a listen. This is literally the meditation practice that most people are in is like, here's me in my resistance, out of alignment, got to get rid of it. Got What you're saying is like, that is literally part of the exact thing that allows you to be as great as you are. So that completely reframes it. It's just gorgeous and so important. You know, you know, you know, Friday night, we sing a song, Shalom Aleichem. And we're taught that these two angels show up at our meal and we welcome these two angels. The question is, who are these two angels? Uh, well, one understanding is that they're the Yetzer Tov and the Yetzer Hara. There's the good inclination and the inclination for evil, let's call it ego. And we're welcoming them and we're saying that they are angels of peace because on Friday, we're able to look ego in the face and say, I love you. Because without you, I wouldn't have a choice. I wouldn't have a challenge. You're actually why I have the ability to grow because you're pushing on me. There's a comedian that had a great line. He said, I wanted to get into shape. And so I joined the gym, but I don't know. They kept asking me to lift heavy things. <laughs> so I left. 
You know, it's like, yeah, we're here to lift heavy things. And our ego is handing us these heavy things and convincing us, no, you're really separate. You're really not connected to these people. You should just think about your money. Oh, no, no. You know, your fame is more important than, than anything else in the world. And it's really hoping you're going to say no. No, it really wants you to say no, but it's got a job. And its job is to put in your face the opposite. I call the Yitzhah the anti-self. We have within us an anti-self. There's something about us that's trying to self-sabotage us. And rather than seeing it as our enemy, realize it's actually our friend dressed up as our enemy, trying to get us to jump higher, to be stronger, to be more courageous. To learn to say no. I think probably that's the hardest thing for a lot of people is to really say no when you when to no to say no. Because that's a, that's a big one to say no to that ego. And then say, thank you so much for challenging me on that. You know, because if you wouldn't, you know, like Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. And there's a snake and it says that God created this snake to be the most seductive most manipulative creature of all well well that's really nice like we could have just enjoyed ourselves uh, you know in this garden and and then of all things god says this tree i don't want you to eat from i'm gonna put it in the middle of the garden well couldn't you put it somewhere behind a mulberry bush you know if i don't want my son to touch my new computer i put it in his bedroom I then pay his brother to go in there and say, touch it, touch it, touch it. It's, it's a setup. The whole thing's a setup. Why? Because Adam and Eve, and it's on the sixth day of creation, which is the day they're being created. How does God create you? By putting in front of you a courageous choice. Until you make that choice, you haven't become human. Animals don't make choices. They do what they feel like doing. And human beings could say, you know, there's something more important than what I feel like doing. It's what's right to be doing. And so that's what that was all about. And so the snake really, the, the Midrash, the oral tradition says that the snake actually is a servant of God. A servant of God, and he's waiting for that. And that takes us to the story of Jacob. You might be familiar, Jacob is wrestling with the angel of Esau, who is the angel of evil. You might say the embodiment of evil. And Jacob is wrestling with the angel. And the angel says, let me go, because it's dawn. So our sages say, what's dawn got to do with it? They're fighting all night. And this evil angel, so to speak, that Yaakov is wrestling with says, let me go. It's dawn. So the sages tell us that what happens at dawn is the angels sing God's praise. And what this evil angel was saying, Jacob, let me go. Because of you, I can finally join the chorus of those that are singing praises to God. Because you understand that I'm wrestling with you to make you strong. You understand that I'm wrestling with you to get you to clarify who you are. You know that I'm wrestling with you to have the courage to admit to yourself that what you did was with good intentions. So thank you because you looked me in the face and you realize who I am. 
there's a scene in Batman, which I didn't, I actually saw just a clip of it on YouTube, but one of my students told me about it. It's a scene where Joker, Batman is about to destroy Joker forever. And Joker says to Batman, Batman, you can't do this. You can't get rid of me because without me, you're not Batman. Right? Who are you without me? You need me because that's what makes you a hero. I make you a hero. So your ego is there to make you a hero. And so that's what ego is. Ego is hoping that you'll say no. So beautiful. All right. Another powerful moment we had this year is with the author, Mitch Album, who's essentially just a spiritual guide through his writing, but he never planned on any of this to happen. So this is an incredible story of how his career as an author took off. I had been very close with Maury when I was in college. Uh, I took every class that he offered. Uh, we walked around campus together. We ate meals together. I went to his home. I mean, he was really more like an uncle, you know, to me. And, and I spent all four years in his company. And he made me promise when I graduated that I would stay in touch. And I promised I would. And then I broke that promise for 16 years. Uh, while I got first, I got tangled in the music business and then I got into the journalism business. I got on the SPN radio show, television show, and I was just totally wrapped up in myself, you know, and uh, I reached 37 without ever having called him. And then one night I happened to be flipping the remote control and there he was on the Nightline program talking to Ted Koppel about what it was like to die. And that was the only way that I even found out that he was sick. So I called him. It's a funny story because I had called Maury coach back in college. That was my affectation for him. I coach. How you doing, coach? That kind of thing. And when I saw him on Nightline, I decided I would call him up. That was all it was going to be. I was just going to call him up, make a phone call, ease my conscience, and then I guess go back to my busy life. And when I called him up, I had long since forgotten this nickname and uh, the nurse answered the phone. She handed it to him, and I remember exactly what I said. Hello, Professor Schwartz. My name is Mitch Album. I was a student of yours in the 70s. I don't know if you remember me. And the first thing he said to me after 16 years was, how come you didn't call me coach? And so, needless to say, by the end of the conversation, I was going to visit him because guilt is a very powerful motivator. And uh, I still, I was going to visit him one time. That was going to be it. But uh, I was just so taken with the way he was handling his dying from Lou Gehrig's disease and the fact that he couldn't move his legs and could barely move his arms at that point and knew he was going to die. But he was still so vibrant and had so much to say and wasn't at all interested in the things that I was interested in. And I remember going home that night saying, you know, you're, you're 37 years old, you're perfectly healthy. And he's 78 years old and dying. And he seems 10 times more content and happy with his life than you are. And there's something the matter here. And so I began to go back uh, every Tuesday and one after another, after another, after another. And it turned out to be all the Tuesdays that he had left in his life. And we kind of did this last class together on what's really important in life once you know you're going to die. And wouldn't it be great to have that knowledge now when you're young enough, as I was, healthy enough to maybe change your life and do something about it. But it was never supposed to be a book, Kathy. I mean, it was it was just an experience. The book came about when he told me one day that he was afraid that he was going to die twice. And I said, well, what does that mean? And he said, well, first, I'm going to die when I die. And then 
I'm going to die when I realize wherever I am next that my family has to sell the house to pay my bills because of all these bills I've accrued for years and, you know, dying slowly, we don't have the money to pay it. So it was then that I got the idea, well, maybe I, I could write a book to help him pay his bills. And I didn't tell him that I was going to try to do that because I was afraid, well, if I say that and I go out and then I fail, I'm just going to make his life worse. So I privately went to these different publishers around New York all while this was all going on. And uh, everybody said no. So I really would have given up if it was for me. But because it was for somebody else, I pushed harder and I found uh, a publisher who was interested in it. And when we were able to come to an agreement a few weeks before more, and I went to him and told him that, uh, hey, uh, you know, all these conversations were taping and stuff like that. Well, there's a publisher that wants to turn it into a book. And he said, oh, really? Who? And I said, Doubleday. He said, ooh, I heard of them. I said, well, not only that, but they're going to give us some money. I want you to take all the money and pay off your medical bills so you don't have to die twice, you know. And I always say, Kathy, that for me, that was the end of Tuesdays with Maury, the experience, because I had kind of, you know, come from a place where I was really just looking out for myself and my own career and those kinds of things to committing to do something that would help somebody else. And at the time, had no promise for me. I just wanted to be a sports writer. So for me, this was just a like, a, okay, this is going to take me some time to go off to left field and do this, but it's worth doing because I can help him. I finally did one nice thing for this man who had done so many nice things for me. So, you know, I, he never read a word of Tuesdays with more. I didn't start writing it until after he passed away. I wrote it as simply as I could. I wasn't planning on that book being anything. They printed 20,000 copies, and I thought I'd have them in the trunk of my car for the rest of my life, you know, and I'd be giving them out at Christmas. So, and then a funny thing happened. They just, people began to read it. There's no other explanation for it. It, did, it came out in August of 1997. Didn't show up on a bestsellers list until November of 1997, nearly four months later, yeah, almost four months later, and then didn't reach the top of those lists until April of the following year. So it was just a slow sort of people passing it around. I'm not even sure it could happen today, but it did back then. And that changed my life. I've never written a sports book since. I've, uh, my whole direction of my, you know, interests and outside life and everything has changed as a result of that, but it was never my intention. As John Lennon famously said, life is what happens to you while you're busy making plans. And my plans were something else. And the world had other plans for me. Isn't that amazing? That is a knock your socks off moment. What an incredible story. And here's another one of those just jaw-dropping tales from none other than one of my favorite singer-songwriters, Christina Perry. Buckle up for this one. I was in this like transitional limbo and Kelsey was like, I'm going to come to LA and I'm going to manage you, but we're going to write a letter to the universe and we're going to call it the 10 and we're going to make five dreams and wishes for 2010. And I was less magical then. And I was like, like rolling my eyes, like, no way. What are you talking about? She's like, get a pen right now. She's so bossy. So I write this down and I still have this paper too. I do Kelty first. And so I'm like the 10 Kelty line dash, you know, I'm like, okay, what's your wish? And she goes, uh, quit diet Coke, stop dating assholes, get great bangs. These are her huge 
wishes and dreams. <laughs> I think she said write a book, which was great because she ended up doing that. But uh, and then her last one was give Christina magic motivational moonbeams quote. So I'm like, okay, like I'm just dying, you know, inside. But I'm like, whatever, I'll I'll do it. So mine, all right, Christina, quit smoking. I smoked cigarettes. Mine said play three shows. Meet and marry Jason Mraz. At this point, I was just fucking with Kelsey. <laughs> I didn't believe any of this. <laughs> Make a savings account with $20 a month. Like I literally like had no money. And then my last one was bask in Kelsey's magic motivational moonbeams. So I have to mention that because we write that. I come back to LA for New Year's. She comes with me the whole month of January. She's like, please play shows. Please do this. And I'm like, no, I'm... I'm tired. I'm working. I'm just trying to survive. She asked me to come over now on January 30th or whatever of 2010. She just broke up with a guy. She went on one date with after match.com. She lit all the candles in her room. Cause so you think you could dance was very big at this time. And she lit all our candles and she's like, please come over and sing my favorite song, which was a song I wrote called black and blue. And I said, no, I'm, I just got home. It's like 10 o'clock at night. Like I'm already in my pajamas. She's like, no, please just come over in your pajamas. Like, please just sing the song. I already lit my candles. Like you have to, I just need to dance. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So just being a good friend, I was like, whatever. So I go over to her apartment across the street. I'm in my PJs. She sticks a beret on my head, sticks me in the corner in the dark on a stool. I play the song called Black and Blue. She dances like she's on say, thank you for your dance, but it's contemporary emotional emo dancing. I'm like, are you done? Do you feel better? You know, can I go to bed now? And she's like, yeah, yeah, I feel so much better. Thank you. And so she walks me out of her apartment. Uh, we're on Beachwood Drive in LA. We're looking at Capitol Records. We can see it. This is the part in the Disney movie where a shooting star just shoots by. She puts her arm around me. She's like, you know, Chris, she's like, you just need like a real manager, like someone who knows people, like someone who can like really guide you. And I'm like, yeah, good night. Like literally just walk across the street, go to sleep not making this up in any way. I wake up in the morning to an email from Jason Mraz's manager. He had found me on Facebook. He says, Hey, my name's Tom Gates, manager guy named Jason Mraz. I just saw a video of you playing a song and this girl dancing. I went and poked around your YouTube. I love all your covers. Can we meet? Now, I was like, I mean, I think like the whole town heard me scream. Like if this is a movie, this is like me and Kelty. I like Kelty runs over. She's in her PJs. We're screaming. Like we're literally, she took a picture. I have a picture. This is so cute. I have a picture of me looking at my computer and like Kelty took a picture of me with the email because it's like, that's just, how does that happen? Like that is a lightning in a, in a bottle moment. Right. And so we freak out. He says, do you have a bio? And Kelty and I are like, of course I do. And like, so we write a bio. We send it to him. I met with him the next day, his partner, Ryan, and 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 me and him. And, and we loved each other instantly. Within five months, everything on that list came true. Everything on my, you know, the 10 magic motivational moonbeams list. I had signed a record deal. I had played three shows. I, I didn't meet. I mean, I didn't marry Jason Raz. I had to say, I met him. I went to one of his shows. Within uh, the next two years, we did a duet together. We toured together. We became friends. His manager was my manager. Then all of a sudden, the Twilight, you know, I, I signed with Atlantic Records. They're like, we put out the Twilight soundtracks. And I'm like, yeah, I know. I don't care about Aretha Franklin. I saw, I saw the Twilight covers on the, you know, records on the wall. 
They asked me to write a song for the wedding. I write a thousand years. I mean, my life just continued to be this like phenomenal chain of events where it just dragged me. I was like, I was the one going, it's not supposed to be me. me. I'm a writer. I don't want to be the performer. I'm not, I'm not going to sing. I've never played shows. I never, my very first time I ever played a show ever was June 6th, 2010 on the CBS morning show. I played Jar of Hearts. It was the first time ever in my life. And then the second show I ever played was Jay Leno. And then the third show I ever played was So You Think You Can Dance. They had me back after they played my song. So those first three shows that I played that I wrote on my letter to the universe were on television. (laughs) And I was like traumatized. I mean, like now I can just be like, oh, how cute. I was 23 and scared and threw up constantly, you know, but like it was so scary and wonderful. It was a tornado and it was everything I dreamt of. But I want to say I also wrote it down. So I definitely believe in manifesting and showing up. I've said yes to everything. I was so scared. Said yes to all of it. How good is that story? Gives me chills. I had the honor of talking with another amazing singer-songwriter who I've been a fan of for years, the delightful, very, very loving, special Andy Grammer. You're going to love this moment he shared and how he was able to open up a portal of more magic. Now I have like... 15 minutes where people will stop, but I'm performing out on the street and this homeless guy is walking by and he says, you all right? I'm like, all right. And he goes, you don't got hooks though. You need some hooks. You don't got any hooks. And, and I would say in my life, the only time that, um, (laughs) criticism, criticism really hurts or gets through is when it's true. Yeah. Like I can go play, I can go sing a national anthem for something or I can play a big TV thing. And then Twitter won't really affect me unless they're saying something that I know to be true. And then you're like, ouch. And so in this moment, this guy was right. I didn't have hooks. And I started really trying to write hooks as well as, okay, so that happened. And then another thing happened pretty close to that where it had been a full day and I'd been performing for like eight to 10 hours just on the street and fully ignored for no one put a dollar in my case. No one, not a smile. Just a full ignore situation for a whole day. And I actually had a conversation with this guy where I was packing up my cart to go put it in my mom's minivan. And I screamed in the middle of the street like, okay, now it's a little on you because I'm here. And I've been here and I'm never going to stop and I will never leave. So if that's what you need to know from me, like I'm never leaving if you want my purpose to be that I just play to people that are coming to get jeans for the rest of my life. I'll do that. I'm not going to give up on this. And then I went home and wrote a song called Keep Your Head Up, which was like the song that took me off the street. Yeah. So that's kind of the game. <laughs> like, this is what I try to tell. Like, when I go into speed colleges, I'm like, do you get a little that I'm a little crazy? Like, do you see the crazy in my eye? Kind of what, like, edge you have to be leaning on to, like, push through this thing here? To get to a place where you can be of service to other people, you first have to really stake claim to I'm here for more than what I'm currently doing and I will do almost anything. Oh my gosh. I love that story. Now I want to share this powerful clip from speaker and Peloton instructor Tundi Oyanian about how she got this divine download and used it to create a whole world of possibilities. So I was actually, you know, I was in New York. I lived in LA at the time, originally from Houston, Texas, daughter of two immigrants who from Nigeria who immigrated uh, 
to create a better life for their children. They're not here anymore just to see all of this, but everything I do is, is for their legacy. So I was in New York on a, a makeup gig and I wanted to work out. So I went down to the hotel gym. Hotel gym had like a busted treadmill and a hula hoop. So I real, quickly realized that I was not, not going to get any workout that meant anything in. So I decided to go to uh, a local cycling studio. And so I went, clipped in $40 later after the water bottle, the towel, the shoes, all the things, judging myself, thinking to myself, this better be good. I unclipped 45 minutes later and I'm in this state of euphoria. It's like, I'm floating. I'm walking back to the hotel room and I realize that my walk turns into a skip. I notice that my skip turns into a hop and I'm just floating. I feel this wave of blue energy move through my body from my fingers to my toes. Kathy, it's like within a matter of five seconds, I saw my life's trajectory pass in front of me. I get chills every single time I've told this story and I've told this story. It's in the book. Every single time I say it, it's almost like I relive it and I feel it. And it reminds me that this is all part of it. But I feel this wave of blue energy flash from my fingertips to my toes. And within a matter of five seconds, let me remind you, this is my very first cycling class. After my very first cycling class, I knew that I would be cycling for the rest of my life. Not only did I know that I'd be cycling for the rest of my life, I knew that I'd be teaching it. And I knew that I'd be teaching it on the world's biggest platform, able to touch thousands of millions of people. At the time, I didn't even know what Peloton was. And so, you know, I get back to LA, I tell my friends this vision I have. They cry. They say, this sounds so right for you. This is what you should do. They've never even seen me cycle. So I'm like, why are you guys so sure about this plan? They said, tune I don't know, but it sounds, you know, sounds right. You know, and I'll say, you know, imposter syndrome set in once I got back. I don't look like an instructor, sound like an instructor. Who's going to look, want to look at me on a bike? Who's going to be inspired by anything that I have to say? All those things happened, right? I mentioned this idea of the fact that I was in this job that I no longer found rewarding because I think it's important to note, I was so uncertain. Everything seemed so unclear. I was in this space of immense, extreme doubt. I know now not to fear doubt. Doubt is uncomfortable. It doesn't feel good. But I don't think that doubt is a bad thing. I think that when doubt enters, it's our body's way of allowing in a course correction, whether it's a relationship with your partner, relationship with your friend, that you're doubting that friendship, relationship with a colleague, work, your job, your career. So I was in this space of doubt, doubting my career. I was in the space of uncertainty, which again, I think is not bad. I think that uncertainty, the beauty in uncertainty is that there's infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And so then anything can be next. Because I was uncertain, I opened my mind, opened my vision, which allowed me to receive what was coming in. If I thought I knew what was supposed to be next, I would have gone in with blinders and said, fitness? No, 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 no. I don't have any experience in that. 
<laughs> you know, but because I was so open to receiving, I was able to take this divine download that hit me by way of a blue light. I could have easily said that I was daydream. I could have easily said I was hallucinating and dehydrated from investment class. But instead I received the message for exactly what it was. I never dreamed of this. The moments that are here. Yeah, I dreamed of that. And I saw that. I said in the third grade that I would write a book. When I was in first grade, my first thing that I've ever said I wanted to do, I said I wanted to be a teacher. My dad said, no, you don't. You won't make enough money. The joke there is that I was an educator in the cosmetic world 15 years. And I teach or train every single day by virtue of a bike. So that happened. I was an overweight kid with low self-esteem. I didn't think that I was beautiful because I had dark skin and no one looked like me. I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood. The black kids that we did, that did go to my school, uh, there were no black girls as dark as me. My mother was light skinned. I just didn't see black women. So one day I saw Naomi Campbell, who that vision changed the way that I saw myself. All of that to say, you know, as this kid that's, overweight, horrible at all sports. I would look at Nike and Nike athletes and think, wow. I would think of women, I would look at women in beauty campaigns and think, wow. Fast forward 2021, I become Nike's first ever trainer to be named Nike athlete. Um, And I have a renewed contract with Revlon as one of the faces of Revlon. So I I didn't ask for this exactly, but I, I envisioned it. So awesome. Well, I couldn't do a best of episode without including one of my childhood crushes, the one and only Ralph Macchio. It was such a surreal experience to talk with him. And he was even more sweet and amazing than I would have hoped for. If you're like me and you were obsessed with Karate Kid, you're going to love this. When you were making that movie, were you aware that this was going to have the magnitude that it had? Um, No, but... And first of all, I agree with you on those pinnacle moments of those those movies that affect you in such a way. And yeah. it's a credit to Robert Kamen, who wrote that beautiful script, and John Avelson, the great director who directed it. And, of course, Pat Morita being, you know, my partner in that soulful magic of what I call it in the book. I knew that. I knew that Pat and I had something special that was beyond just two actors working together first of all i heard that from anyone who would watch us yeah they would just say you guys this is just magic this is just you know i didn't know necessarily it was magic i knew it was effortless and easy to the point where i just listened and reacted and he did the same and there was just this unconditional love if you will just through the writing And through these two, you know, vessels, these actors, you know, portraying this, this story. And so this movie called The Karate Kid, and I made fun of the title when I first (laughs) talked about it and I write about it, you know, and I always wonder if it's like, maybe I knew, maybe it was foreshadowing. I knew if I ever got (laughs) this thing, I'd have to carry it for the rest of my life. So can't we change the title to like, I don't know, Reseda or, uh, (laughs) 
me and my mom go to California or I met a human Yoda. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, all these other titles. And then it was kind of corny and a little sweet at times. I was just like, maybe this is going to be just like a after school special TV movie thing. And I didn't know I was, you know, youth is wasted on the young, but I did know that Pat and I, it was effortless. And I think that taught me when it is that easy, maybe it's meant to be. Ah, he's just the best. The next clip is from our episode with interior designer, Bobby Burke. He has one of the wildest stories I've ever heard. And what we're about to play for you is only one crazy chapter in his amazing journey, but it's really such an essential one. In between Bed Bath & Beyond and Portico, I worked for an Italian linen company who brought me on to help them expand their brand in the U.S., Everything I tried to do, they fought me on it. And finally, they fired me saying I was an idiot. I'd never amount to anything. So that was a little smidget of time. But luckily, one of the retailers that we manufactured for, Portico, I dealt with the owner all the time. And he loved me. And he was like, dude, forget them. They're crazy. Come work for me. So he hired me to run his store in Soho, which to jump forward a little bit, the back of that store ended up touching the back of the store that in the future will have my name on it. Um, So that was another like weird moment. I'm going to cry. It's unbelievable. So I started out managing that store and then I went to corporate and I was a buyer and then I developed their e-commerce division. And then in the end, I was a creative director of the company. Then they went bankrupt. (laughs) And so I am like, crap, what am I going to do? Because again, like it wasn't easy for me to get a job. I had a criminal background. I had no education. And at that point I had a good job and I'm like, crap, I'm finally Uh. getting a little bit ahead in life. I'm finally not working jobs that I'm having to have two to three jobs at a time. And I'm like, crap, what am I going to do? I'm like, I can't keep working for other people. Like luckily like that company, I got the job because they knew me from working for another company. So I didn't have to do background checks. Mm. So I cloned the database that I had built the e-commerce division on and I went online and I registered bobbyburkhome.com and I launched bobbyburkhome.com and I'm like, maybe I'll sell a sofa or two while I look for another job. I never thought it would be successful, but I sold more than a sofa or two. I was one of the first online retailers out there selling modern furniture. I was one of like maybe two websites that sold furniture online and, and people thought it was crazy, especially our suppliers. I started getting emails and letters from our suppliers telling me cease and desist. You don't have authorization to sell our products. Like, who are you? Portico did, but you didn't. And I like so many of them, I was like, please give me a chance. And they're like, no, we're not selling online. That's crazy. Who wants to buy furniture online? And all of our brick and mortar stores are going to drop us if they see us selling to these online retailers. So fast forward a little bit. I convinced some of them to continue selling to me. Um, one of which I ended up being their largest U.S. retailer in the future. So I was like, eh. and so I had such a hard time getting good products because manufacturers didn't want to sell to an online retailer. I finally was like, fine, you know, I'll think about opening up a brick and mortar store. And it just so happens that I end up getting a call from the Italian guy that had fired me <laughs> telling me I was never going to amount to anything. And he's like, hey, so I see you have your own brand now and 
I have a store in Soho and it's not doing very well. And you seem to be doing very well. Do you want to partner with me and buy out part of the company? And I was like, wait, what? I thought I was an idiot. I never amount to anybody or to anything, but I was like, Oh, this is kind of like, I manifested this. I needed a store and here's a store. So he had, I think it was like six, $700,000 in debt which to me at the time was like, it might as well have been a billion. So he was like, all right, I, I will sell you half the company for $50,000 and you take on all the debt. And all my friends in finance were like, no, no, what are you thinking? No. And, but in my mind, I was like, yes, yes, yes. Because if I can make this work and I get a store in Soho, do you know how many decades it takes brands to get stores in Soho? And once you're in Soho, you've made it. You are an international brand. So I'm like, if I can make this work, I can skip decades of work. And I was like, if I can't make it work, what's the worst that happens? I reinvent myself again. So I got my husband to get the credit line on his credit card increased. And I took out a $25,000 cash loan on his credit card. And I paid the guy 25,000 down and I took on all his debt. And then I turned his, his Italian luxury betting store, which was not doing well into an Italian luxury sample sale location. It was at Spring and Crosby where my, my store was for about 10 years. Oh. And I, I had a guy that stood on the corner with a big sign, you know, luxury Italian betting 90% off. And I paid that six, $700,000 in debt off in like nine months. I always say I should have left that as a sample sale location because that girl was a cash cow. <laughs> People love, and I did it by contacting all the suppliers that he owed all this money to and be like, hey, he's never going to pay you. Yeah. He screwed you. He he's sold so the debt smart. to me. Give me a credit line. Send me a little bit of product. And I promise you, I will pay you back. <laughs> So they gave me, you know, like a $10,000 credit line and they're like, all right, we'll send you some product. And I pay that off quickly. And then, you know, more and more and more and more and more to where I totally paid them off. And then they ended up being one of my biggest suppliers. So as soon as I got that paid off, the store was still doing well. He started like taking money from the company and he's like, oh, I own that the company now. I take the money. Um, it was my worst Italian accent. I'm so sorry to all the Italians out there. <laughs> um, and Eventually, I was like getting so angry because I was the one that got the company out of debt. I was the one that was making money, but he was taking so much money out of the company that I couldn't do with the store what I wanted to do with the store, which was really turn it into a Bobby Burke home. I knew he had a lot of shady tax debt. And so basically one day I, I sent him an email. I'm like, I know you have this, 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 and this. I need to never hear from you or see you again. Right. <laughs> you keep taking clear. money from me. And if and if I do hear from you or see you again, and if you don't sign the company over to me, I'm going to turn you in for this, 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 and this. Good for and you. And you're, you're, you're never going to be able to step foot back in the U.S. again without going to jail. Sing and it, so Dexter. That's it, man. He signed the company over to me. Guts. That very day, I put up a Bobby Burke home banner, and I turned it into my first Bobby Burke home store. Isn't that insane? We also heard an amazing origin story from the awesome Kendra Scott. This is such a prime example of how just saying yes and figuring out the how later really goes a long way. When I started Kendra Scott after my failed first business, which was my little hat store, I didn't tell people. I was embarrassed to tell people that I was doing something new. I can't believe this. This is hard to believe. <laughs> because I was and thought they'd be like, oh, there she goes again. You know, she had a failed business. <laughs> what is she here? She's go trying to do something else. 
So I actually was really quiet about it in the beginning. And as it started to gain momentum, more boutiques were carrying it, having great success, selling out of it within just a few days of receiving the orders. I got a Dallas showroom who called me and that was the next big step. I remember in my little extra bedroom, and this is for real, uh, Kathy, you'll love this. I get a call and she's like, um, are you Kendra Scott? And I said, yeah, thinking I'm about to write another order. I'm like, yes, can I help you? She's like, uh, I have a showroom in Dallas and all of my boutiques in Austin are not buying my lines because they're buying from this local girl named Kendra Scott. And I was like, um, yeah, that's me. And she's like, I want to see this collection. Could you come to Dallas, you know, tomorrow or, or later this week and show me your line? And I'm like, line? I mean, That's does she know crazy. that I'm in an extra bedroom and my line is kind <laughs> of a bunch of beads and wire and tools like laid out on a card table? But yeah. I was like, sure, I'll come and show you my line. You know, it's that total fake it till you make it. And you know, went to Dallas, went to this huge market center where I had gone as a buyer when I owned my hat company, but now coming in as a designer and just thinking, oh my God, she's going to just see that I'm like, don't know what I'm doing. But I had enough experience buying merchandise. I kind of knew what to expect. And so went in there and she loved the collection and she wanted to sign me as one of her lines to carry in her showroom. And just seeing, just sometimes having a little bit of those affirmations from someone else that, wow, someone else thinks this is good, that I could also start to believe it and believe in myself and feel like I could start to say to the world and to the people around me, I've started a business, a jewelry company. And, And each day that kind of went on, I started to believe more and more, but never, ever in a billion million years, if you would have told that girl walking into the Dallas Market Center that she would be at the helm of an over billion dollar valuated company, I would have laughed. I would have been like, you are crazy, right? So I still wasn't there. My mind wasn't oh. like, this is where this is going to yeah. go. But it was these steps along the way that started making me see possibility that I may not have seen in the very beginning. So incredible. All right. Now I want to play a beautiful piece from one of the most beautiful souls, Takdiz Razak, who is already making so many waves and she's only just getting started. She's been in my programs and she was with us in Malibu and she shared these healing words that really stand as such a reminder to the oneness that we all are capable of being a part of and emanating in this world. It seems like the angels have arrived after hard, <laughs> hard work. Um and when we were doing the meditation, I want to like just share it publicly. I saw so much light and I saw flowers just like blooming around me. And then all of a sudden I saw Kathy and I sitting in Jerusalem together with so many women. Um, and after that, I just cannot stop crying because look at all of us. We all speak different languages. We all have different faiths. We all have different roads, but look at the congruence among all of us and the bloodshed and the hatred and all this misery that we just put each other through for no fair reason, just politics does not make sense anymore. It does not. And you know, I've never, I like literally felt like while you were there, it was, this is what paradise would be like without any borders, just bridges among each other. I know Kathy has been telling me for the longest time to 
start coaching, you can do it, you can do it. Even Colleen always, it's it has been there, but always I was like, oh, the hijab, the brown skin, I'm overweight. And that just kind of got brushed off here. Like, I was like, who am I to just step up? You know, it's just, I cannot stop thinking about the hate that we see all around. Look at the breath work we did. We all breathe the same air. All of our hearts beat the same way. How can God like just would have created differentiation between all of us? We are all the same. Listening to the stories, like there's so many times where I was like, okay, so they experienced this too. This exact same thing happens in Pakistan or Pakistani culture or so many cultures I know. It doesn't make sense anymore for all this hatred. And I love you all. And every word and every hug, I think I'm going to cherish it for at least as long as I live. And after that, thank you so much. My gosh, I wish all the world leaders could hear and receive that message. So another conversation I loved this year was with comedian Tig Notaro. She shared with us how she went through such a painful time in her life. And when she was so vulnerable and open about it with her audience, it completely changed the trajectory of her career. In a four month period of time, I was, um, I had pneumonia and then I had this intestinal disease that's very deadly, um, called C. diff that was, um, eating my insides to put it lightly. And, um, and then I got out of the hospital and a few days later, my mother tripped and hit her head and I had to fly home to take her off life support. And, and then my girlfriend and I split up right after my mother's funeral. And then I was diagnosed with invasive cancer. And again, that was in a four month period of time. And I, my head was spinning and couldn't quite process things. And then, you know, all the while I'm, I'm a stand up comedian. And so right. I'm, you know, although I have a sense of humor, I was a little backed up with my sense of humor. I, it was hard to get into real time with it and, and find any levity, but I had this show booked and I had called the owner of Largo in Los Angeles and just said, you know, I don't think I'm going to be able to do the show. I just, I'm at a breaking point. I was just diagnosed with invasive cancer and, and he knew everything that had happened previously or prior to that. And he said, I think you should keep it on the books just in case you decide you want to get on stage. And I was like, are you hearing me? I, I, I was so confused by his reaction. And then I just said, fine. I said, keep it on the books, (laughs) but I'm pretty sure I'm not going to be there. And then as the days inched closer, which was only a couple of days, um, I did feel like maybe I will go on stage. And I was flipping back and forth between, do I just tell people what I'm going through and try and make light of it? And um, and I talked to good friends of mine that are very well-known, well-respected comedians that had been in and out of the hospital dealing and like holding my hand through all of this horror. 
And they were saying, do not go on stage and talk about this. You know, this is, this is not going to be helpful to your state of mind. They were trying to be protective. And I was like, okay, yeah, maybe I shouldn't talk about this. And then, and I kept fighting it. I was like, it feels so weird though, to not mention it because I was deathly ill. I was devastated to the deepest degree. And I didn't know how I could get on stage and just say, oh, (laughs) you know, I had a weird experience at a restaurant recently um, when all the other stuff was going on. And so I decided last minute I am going to do it and I am going to talk about what happened. And I was in the shower right before the show that night thinking, how am I going to walk on stage and talk, get into all this? And then it came over me that it would be kind of funny and dark to just walk out on stage and say, hello, good evening. How's everyone doing tonight? I have cancer. Any birthdays? How's it? How's everyone's night? You know? And, um, and so that's what I did. And it just exploded, you know, people started tweeting and blogging and telling friends. And I just had no idea that it was going to explode the way that it did. Incredible. We also had on best-selling author and speaker Hal Elrod, who is a cancer survivor as well. And the way he talks about things just lit such a fire in him. And it also just brought me to tears. Check this out. Here's my affirmation formula. Step one, I am committed to blank no matter what, there is no other option. I am committed to running 52 miles no matter what, there is no other option. When I had cancer, which we haven't got into that, but when I had cancer, uh, I affirmed I'm committed to beating cancer and living to be 100 years old alongside Ursula and the kids no matter what, there is no other option. And again, we get what we're committed to. And I had, I was given a 20 to 30% chance of surviving. This was about five years ago. And when I would feel fear that I might die, despite doing everything in my power to survive, I thought, what if I, what if I die? Like, what if, what if I don't make, I mean, what if I'm in the 70 to 80% people that die from this? I would pull out the affirmations. I had them everywhere. They were printed on my bedside table. They were on my phone. They were with me at all times. I pulled the affirmations. Whenever I'd feel that fear, I would acknowledge this fear is not serving me. I'd pull up the affirmations and I'd go, I am committed to beating cancer and living to be 100 plus years old alongside Ursula and the kids, no matter what, there is no other option. I would read it with such conviction and such passion and such emotion that it became my reality. And eventually the fear disappeared. I didn't even really feel the fear anymore because I replaced it with that faith, right? So step one, affirm what you're committed to. Step two, affirm why it is a must for you. Why is it a must? Why are you committed? And for me, I like to list bullet points of the most compelling reasons why I am committed to that outcome. So going back to the affirmation, the cancer affirmations, I said, I'm committed to beating cancer for Ursula because I promised her forever. Sometimes I get emotional when I I say these. Um, I'm committed to beating cancer for Ursula because I promised her forever in a day. I'm committed to beating cancer for Sophia and Halston because they need their dad's love. You're getting emotional and I'm getting emotional. They need their dad's love, guidance, uh, you know, for the rest of my long life. Um, I'm committed to beating cancer for my mom and dad because they don't deserve to lose another child. My sister died when I was eight. I'm committed to beating cancer for myself because I deserve to live a long, happy, healthy life. And I'm committed to beating cancer for the millions of people 
who are themselves battling cancer or some other disease and were not blessed with the knowledge or resources that I was. And they desperately need my leadership and guidance. And I'm committed to helping as many people as I can. So that was the fuel that powered the affirmation, right? That's the, as Simon Sinek says, right? It's, it's the why, the why that I'm committed to this because this, 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 and this. And without step two, step one can fall flat, right? You can forget why are you committed to that thing that's so far outside of the realm of what you've done before. It's so far away from where you are now, right? It's so far away from what people are telling you is even possible. Step two is where you fuel that. And then step three is what are you committed to doing and when? What are you committed to doing and when? That's where the rubber meets the road, right? Step one, you're affirming what you're committed to. You're affirming it. You're embodying it. It becomes your reality. That commitment is your reality. Step two, you are affirming why, 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 why will I do everything in my power? No matter how I feel, I don't feel like it. I don't care if I feel like it. I committed. And here's the reasons why. And then step three, and, and, and so I will do these things on these days. You know, if you're writing a book, I will write every morning from 7 to 8 a.m. You know, if you're trying to, you know, run a marathon, I will train from 7 to, you know, whatever. If you're, you know, uh, when I was in sales, it was I will make 20 calls a day, five days a week from this time to this time, no matter what, there's no other option. And so when you, when you follow that formula, you are programming your subconscious mind for success. You are programming your conscious behavior. You're literally setting your behaviors up for success. So powerful. Before we share one final guest, I want to share a clip from one of my coaching calls about the relationship between abundance, creativity, and joy. Take a listen. People who are truly creative, they don't just work in music. They also work in fashion. Then they make their own vodka. Then they produce their own movies. Then they're building their own houses. Because once you turn on the faucet of creativity, it doesn't stop. This is how you make money because you're a match for it. This is abundance. Your abundance is your creativity. Your creativity is in your joy. Your creativity can only be turned on. You can't create from lack. If a, if a deer is in fight or flight, it's not in repair. There's nothing creative happening. It can't, right? It can't go into creation mode. It can't even create cells in its body, right? So when you're in fight or flight, you cannot create creativity is actually the hook into abundance. It's not about money first. It's creativity first. How do you get creative? You got to be in wholeness. If you're in doubt and lack and shame and worry, and you just keep playing there and you're like, I'm going to be honest with you. I play there every day. Then there's nothing to talk about. We got to move that, right? Because once you're in a place where you start to feel jazzed and lit, you're going to get creative. Once your energy is creative, You'll be available for this out of the blue thing to hit you every single day. You'll be like, Kath, but it wasn't a one-to-one equation. I got creative, but then this thing happened, which was totally out of the blue. I'm like, no, but that's how it works because you've just created an opening for it. So we are meant to be creating, right? And you want to create an opening. You want to create the ability for this to come in. You want to allow this in. All right. So last but not least, I wanted to share this piece from one of the world's top spiritual teachers, Deepak Chopra. I'll never forget this conversation we had about abundance and purpose. And I'll probably be repeating his words over and over again for all time. Here we go. I remember hearing you say it in meditation, look outside, look into the Amazon. It's all abundance. And one of the made up limiting beliefs is there's not enough, right? Nobody will buy for me. There's not enough money. Nobody will be there for me. There's not enough love. 
how can you help people reframe so that they actually see the world as it is, which is abundant? If you know yourself, when you look at nature, in every seed is the promise of thousands of hours. One seed has the promise of thousands of hours, right? Um, when you were conceived, there were 300 million sperm for that one egg. And one of them made it, and that's you. But, but you see abundance wherever you look in nature. Uh, you know, uh, a human baby has 50 trillion cells or more. Every cell is doing trillions of things at the same time. A human body can regulate itself. It can make antibodies. It can make hormones. It can think thoughts. It can play a piano and make a baby all at the same time. That is abundance, okay? How does it do that? No, it's the biggest mystery that, you know, you have 50 trillion cells, which is more than all the stars in the Milky Way galaxy. And they are doing in new, in fact, if you had to count the number of things per second that every cell is doing, you wouldn't be able to do it in a lifetime. There's no algorithm for that. And yet, Every human being is an expression of that. And while your body is self-regulating, it's tracking the movement of stars and planets because your biological rhythms are the symphony of the whole universe. Circadian rhythms, uh, biological rhythms, gravitational rhythms. It's the ultimate example of the abundance of the entire universe in every cell of your body. It's unbelievable what you just said. And, you know, Einstein is famous for saying that yeah. so much of what we think is reality is an illusion, although it, he's, he'll say, he says, albeit very persistent. And it's so the opposite, right, of what you, you just said. It's this ego's definition of like this separation. Yeah. Like we're each separate from each other. Yeah. Well, we are a unified body, mind, spirit, universe experience, all to one end, joy. So that the last thing I was going to ask you is you said before that such a beautiful knowing, which is that there were 300 million sperm and then it became you, right? For every egg, there are 300 million sperm. It should tell you also something that the divine feminine is more precious than divine <laughs> masculine because the rest of them, the sperm, 300 million, they don't stop to ask for directions. They just get lost. It's a typical male thing. You never want directions. It's interesting because so much of our culture, there's like this masculine and feminine, which we all have both of these energies, but like the do, do, do versus the be, be, be. be, be. And there's yeah. a nice song from Frank Sinatra. It's called <laughs> do, do, be, do. Do, be, do, be, do. You alternate between doing and being. That's so perfect. And it's, it's so cute that you just said that. I was just going to say, you're one of the most loving beings in the world and one of the brightest. So I want to ask you this question. I say on my show something I also learned in Jerusalem, which was this idea that the opposite of depression is not a sense of happiness, but it's this, it's this purpose feeling. And it was an idea that I had heard that I liked. And so often people come to me and the reason that they're seeking and listening is they want to know that there's a purpose to their life. What do you think that that is? 
ultimate purpose in life is to know who you are. That's it. Nobody knows who they are. Say, are you a body? Well, which one? Fertilized eggs, zygote, which one? You don't have a body. It's an activity, perceptual activity. Then some people say, I'm my mind. So which one? You know, you had a different mind when you were a teenager. Others mm-hmm. say, I'm my personality. Well, hopefully that is evolving unless you want to run for, <laughs> unless you want to run for president, then you can freeze your personality at eight years of emotional development. So who are you? This is the most important question. Who you are is the infinite pretending to be a person. And that is the most joyous thing that can be experienced. Wow. What an incredible way to close out that episode. I hope you enjoyed this walk down memory lane. And remember, we have part two coming up on Thursday. So there will be a whole other round of incredible guests from this past year we can celebrate. And I really can never say it again, but thank you. Thank you for listening to my show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your support because it really means the world. And I just want to give you a heads up that we are going to be celebrating our six-year anniversary of starting this podcast. It's going to be just the first week of January, and we're going to be doing a big giveaway. And if you want to win the giveaway, we're going to tell you to leave a review for the podcast. So if you want to get ahead of that now and go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and leave a review, that would be amazing. And if you feel like sharing the podcast, that's another thing that we're going to tell you to do anyway. So you can go ahead and share the podcast on Instagram and let people know if this podcast has indeed been inspiring you. There are so many great episodes coming up in the new year. So please follow along on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on Spotify. You won't be missing out on all the good stuff. And finally, I'm letting you know now that the coaching program I'm about to launch in January is sort of the 2.0 Abundant Ever After Made to Do This combined incredible three-month program. And it is right now on pre-sale for half off. If you want to be a part of that, you can go to kathyhow.com slash join to dive into it now. I love you so much. I'll leave you with a song and I'm going to talk to you soon.
So 